Skip the waiting room. TireRack.com now offers convenient mobile tire installation in select areas. Simply shop TireRack.com for your next set of tires, and at checkout, choose Tire Rack Mobile Tire Installation. An expertly trained technician will arrive with your tires and install them on site, at home, at the office, wherever you are. You'll spend less time waiting and more time doing the things you enjoy. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. We uh, still don't have a speaker at the house, Ben. You know, I I, uh, I saw that Jim Jordan just uh, didn't provoke that groundswell of overwhelming no. enthusiasm that one would think a man like Jim Jordan could do. Is it technically a cell phone? I, I mean, basically, being in the Republican House caucus is a bit of a cell phone. Yeah, it's a bit of a cell phone. <laughs> yeah. We're leading with this because all the news is so yeah, depressing today. Uh, we just have to yeah. like kind of laugh about something. But obviously, today. We are going to talk about the ongoing Israeli military campaign in Gaza and the efforts to create a humanitarian safe zone and get humanitarian relief into the Gaza Strip. President Biden is going to Israel. We're going to talk about that and the U.S. government's response to try to manage this crisis, as well as the international community's response and how they're very different. We will also then try to catch you up on some of the other major stories happening in the world including reports that uh, Senator Bob Menendez maybe was just an Egyptian spy. Just a straight up spy, actually. <laughs> what? Yeah, like that, that, I'm looking forward to that segment. Yeah, right? me yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about some major elections in Poland, disappointing votes in Australia and New Zealand, uh, and the U.S. may be softening its approach in Venezuela and Pakistan's treatment of refugees. Then you're going to hear my interview with Melanie Ward. She is the CEO of Medical Aid for Palestinians, an organization providing medical relief in the Gaza Strip. And uh, we talk about the dire situation on the ground in Gaza for basically anyone who needs medical services. And then, you know, last week uh, on one of our episodes, we heard a clip from a man on her team named Mahmoud. I asked Melanie how he was doing just to check in. And she relayed to us a conversation she had with Mahmoud recently where he said he had been talking with his wife about whether uh, to write their children's names on their back in marker. So if they die, they can be buried together. So that is the status of yeah. life for people in God's right now. That's um, that's sadly where we are. Yeah. That's all, uh, as bad as it gets. So please uh, listen to the interview and consider supporting her organization at www.map.org.uk. Uh, they're doing life-saving work. So Ben, let's start with the latest in Gaza. Uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, continue to pound Gaza with airstrikes. Palestinian officials say that the strikes have killed more than 2,800 people and injured 10,000 more. Of course, that number is going up constantly. Yeah, as we speak. As we speak. Um, I've seen reports that hundreds, if not more than 1,000 people, maybe just trapped under the rubble, still alive in some cases. Officials in Gaza say they are running dangerously low on food, medical supplies, fuel, and water. The White House reported that Israel had agreed to restore water access to southern Gaza, but Gaza's interior ministry says that no water has reached Gaza in 10 days, and Gaza's three desalination plants that they really rely on for fresh drinkable water have run out of fuel. There is a flurry of diplomatic activity happening in an effort to get aid into Gaza, create a humanitarian safe zone, and get foreign citizens 
out of Gaza. We will cover that diplomacy and humanitarian situation in much more detail later in the show. But a few hours before we started recording, the Gaza Health Ministry said that an Israeli airstrike hit a major hospital in northern Gaza, killing at least 500 people. Uh, And remember, these hospitals are not only packed with people getting medical treatment, but thousands of others who are just there because they think it will be safe from airstrikes and they have nowhere else to go. So Ben, we wanna get to the the Biden trip to Israel in a second, but the Associated Press already announced that Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority has canceled his participation in a meeting with Biden, the King of Jordan and the president of Egypt in Amman uh, in response to this strike on the hospital. The IDF says the hospital is hit by a failed rocket launch from the Islamic Jihad militant group. We obviously don't know what happened for sure. Uh, but Ben, you know, if this was an IDF airstrike, it feels like uh, it would be a seminal moment in terms of public opinion about this war and one of the most deadly airstrikes in the history of this conflict since 2008. Yeah, we should say, you know, we don't know um, exactly what happened here other than um, something absolutely catastrophic happened and many people are dead because of it. Uh, yeah, you know, we've seen um, you know the IDF say it was a rocket from Islamic Jihad. Uh, we don't know that. Um, uh, I, I do wonder about what kind of rocket Islamic Jihad might have that could do that much damage. But you know, uh, we'll have to see. And obviously, the Palestinians are saying this is an Israeli airstrike. Um, I, I think that the the baseline, you know, wh- while everybody kind of awaits that information, and I should say, by the way, like the United States. Um, I think has a responsibility to have a view on this too. Uh, we usually have some capacity to take a look at events and, you know, um, given how invested we are in this, uh, it's not just Israelis and Palestinians who will be putting forward information here. I think it's worth the U.S. government being asked and answering candidly what it things happened here. But uh, the, the, the bigger point is that whatever happened here, this is going to keep happening as long as there's a war in Gaza, you know, and this we've already seen a degree of suffering and a degree of casualties in Gaza that exceeds already any of the previous Gaza wars. And there hasn't even been this ground invasion yet. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what we have to bear in mind. That in it, 10 days. It'll be much, much, much worse uh, with the ground invasion. And there is not uh, humanitarian uh, equipment or food or water or fuel or electricity getting into Gaza. And And, and so to me, that's... It matters, obviously. It really matters uh, what caused this hospital to explode, what struck this hospital. But uh, the, the, the baseline point is the more there's escalation and conflict and bombardment of Gaza and invasion of Gaza um, and rocket fire, of course, um, the more likely it is that things like this are just going to keep happening. That is, that's the nature of, uh, of fighting a war in a densely populated area with over 2 million people, half of whom are children. Yeah. And last Friday, we did an episode where we talked about the Israeli government's ordered evacuation of Gazans in northern Gaza to the south. The UN estimates that 600,000 Gazans have fled from the north to the south. But it's also the case that Israel is still conducting airstrikes in the south. And on that Friday episode, we played some audio sent to us by a journalist named Noor Hazin. She's on the ground in Gaza. We've been trying to reach her since and just check in, uh, maybe get another report, mostly just to see how she's doing. We have not been able to reach her yet, but this is an excerpt from a recent interview that she did, that Noor did, with CGTN, uh, another news network, about the security situation in southern Gaza. Does this mean that attacks are happening in southern Gaza as we speak? 
Yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm in, in Shahada Al-Aqsa Hospital and most of the people arriving, all of the people arriving, are people that were killed or injured during Israeli strikes in their homes in Deir al-Balah, which is located in southern Gaza, just where the Israeli military asked the Palestinian citizens to head for their safety. And as you can see behind me and around me, there is actually nowhere safe here in Gaza. And we're not talking about militants, we're talking about whole families, children and women. Their uh, homes were uh, attacked while these people were inside their homes. You know, Ben, also, I'm not even seeing like anyone trying to do a breakdown of like this number of militants were killed and this many like this. It, it's occasionally the IDF will say, oh, we took out this senior Hamas leader. But it's just like these overwhelming, massive numbers of casualties just get announced day after day after day. And you have to assume that most of these people are just caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. And and look, I mean, just I, I, people need to have the capacity to put themselves in other people's shoes and consider what it's like to be a family in Gaza. Consider yourself having a couple of small children like I do. And you can't stay in your house because it's not safe in northern Gaza. And people are telling you it's not safe. They're telling you to evacuate. You have no food. You have no water. You have no capacity to feed or take care of your family. Nowhere that you go is safe. You go to the south, there are airstrikes happening in the south. That's, this is not something that can be like debated. I mean, no. the, this is happening. Israel's not denying it. They're not denying it. There are airstrikes all over Gaza that are happening. And, and, and I just want to say, like, it is one million percent the case that the assholes out there in the world that, you know, cannot find a way to summon um, any condemnation of the horror of what Hamas did and any empathy with Israelis, those people like have completely told on themselves and it, it was right that they were called out. I will also say, if you cannot see the humanity in these people in Gaza, then you better check yourself too. Because these are human beings. They're, 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 they're human beings just like the people at the music festival. They're babies. human beings just like the people in the kibbutz. They are children. They are babies. They are mothers and fathers. And th- these aren't just numbers. Uh, and so I just, th- 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 this, uh, this has to be policy, discussion, all of it has to be informed by uh, being able to see people, Israelis and Gazans, as, as human beings. And, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't feel like that's what's happening here. Yeah, you know? I should say that the latest casualty account from the October 7th Hamas attack is now up to 1,400 people, and Hamas is believed to be holding 199 hostages. Uh, on Monday, Hamas released its first hostage video featuring a, a 21-year-old woman named Mia Shem. She was one of the many young people at the Nova Music Festival that was attacked. So, Ben, let's talk about President Biden's plan to visit Israel and Jordan tomorrow. So we record this on Tuesday, October 17th. Biden's visit is on the 18th, on Wednesday. We talked about this on, on Pod Save America Monday before the trip was announced. I said I personally would not want to send Biden to Israel right now. I'm genuinely worried about the security situation. Remember when Biden went to, to Ukraine, the U.S. government was able to say to the Russians, like, hey, Biden's going. Don't yeah. fire a bunch of rockets into Kiev or else you'll start World War III. Uh, I'd love to know what you think, but I, I don't know that that kind of warning would work with a terrorist organization like Hamas or Hezbollah. Also, it's not a surprise visit. Usually, like a presidential war zone visit is a surprise. They've announced this one in advance, so I just don't get how that works. Tony Blinken and Netanyahu had to go to a bomb shelter during their meeting. So, like, this is a real life scary situation. I also, listen, this is more political and optical, but like, I don't love the idea of the president of the United States having to run to a bomb shelter because of a terrorist firing a rocket. So, that's another thing to think about. But, like, most of all, 
I worry that Biden having this image side by side with Netanyahu in Israel in the midst of this ongoing carpet bombing of Gaza will mean that the U.S. owns fully the fallout and the fallout from whatever comes next. The one important bit of context is that apparently, you know, Tony Blinken spent nine hours negotiating with Netanyahu yesterday. It sounds like what Tony was doing is saying, look, Biden will visit if you agree to delay this ground invasion and if you agree to provide more humanitarian relief. If so, like that was probably a smart use of leverage in the short term. But long term, I'm still very worried about the United States being seen as all in on this you just horrific assault on uh, on Gaza. Yeah, no, I, look, I think you articulated the the physical risks well and and obviously we we have to hope that that that, that won't come into play. Uh, he's not spending the night there. Um, um, so this you know feels like it's going to be a pretty quick trip on just the going ground. to Tel Aviv, right? Yeah, he's just going to Tel Aviv in and out. Um, the Twitter's useless, but I, I just saw a tweet that I sent to our, our group chat for Pod Save the World that looks like uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany's entire plane had to be evacuated, and everyone's on the ground. People are hitting the tarmac. A rocket was yeah. shot at the at the at the airport. Yeah, so th- those those concerns are real. On on the the broader politics of this, I mean, there's kind of two ways of looking at this. Um, on the one hand, um, you know, you have to kind of admire to a point um, that that Biden is really willing to just kind of lean in here and kind of own this and. If their determination is, and we can get into the diplomacy a bit more, but if their determination is it takes this level of engagement um, and support, because they know that a visit will be perceived globally as you know expressing support for uh, what Israel's doing, and and frankly the administration's own messaging is saying that, um, but that if that can unlock you know some humanitarian assistance into Gaza, if that can serve to kind of calibrate or restrain the nature of the Israeli invasion, I mean, it feels to me, Tommy, like a couple of things happened here over the last several days because the administration's messaging has turned a dial here. Definitely. It went from kind of 100% support to Israel to you know a more nuanced, you know, still leaning in that direction, but this focus on. Um, humanitarian support into in, into Gaza, um, as well as just kind of a there's a kind of body language of some concern that you kind of sense. I think that that means that they're, I mean, I, and I really am just kind of reading tea leaves here, but they they I think they're concerned about what they're already seeing in Gaza and kind of what they are seeing as the Israelis gearing up for a pretty massive invasion. And that's where you had Biden warning against kind of a reoccupation, for instance. But also Tony Blinken was just in all these Arab countries. And I'm sure every one of these leaders was like, this whole region is going to explode if this continues. You know, the our publics are going to be inflamed. There's going to be intifada on the West Bank. The, the, you're not going to be able to keep Hezbollah out of this thing. And, and so it does feel like a bit of, you know, uh, Hail Mary in some ways uh, to say Biden's going to go there and really try to kind of pull the reins in, you know, publicly probably embracing Israel, but uh, I hope privately saying, got to let the aid in, got to kind of calibrate the objectives here. You can't just flatten the city. As you say, we've already seen the the danger here, though, which is that, you know, a hospital is bombed. Uh, and again, with all the caveats, you don't know who, the day before he goes, presumably this ground invasion is still going to happen because Israel says it is. So that could happen as soon as the day he leaves. And, 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 and so that is there's a huge amount of U.S. ownership that comes with that. So you just have to hope that, you know, what that they get through to, to the Israeli government on this thing. The worst case scenario would be that they announce a aid package 
a little bit. It, it's kind of like that they announced the water was turned on and then it didn't get in. You know, the, you don't want to announce some aid package that then everybody sees, well, not much is happening here. And then the second the ground invasion starts, aid turns off anyway. Like that, that would be the worst outcome. You know? Yeah. And also, like, neither of us uh, particularly like Bibi Netanyahu, uh, to say the least. But also, remember, Netanyahu is only in power because of this ultra-nationalist, ultra-far-right coalition that includes people like Itamar Ben-Gavir, his security minister, who said today uh, that the only thing that should enter Gaza until the hostages are released are hundreds of tons of explosives from the Israeli Air Force, not an ounce of humanitarian aid. So they are saying releasing hostages is a precondition for aid, some of the senior members of the Israeli government. So that does not feel like it's going to work or is a particularly good setup. Yeah. I mean, and there may be other things afoot, right? I mean, so if you look at what Tony Blinken said the, uh, last night, at three in the morning, poor guy, uh, give him credit for how hard he's working. You know, he alluded to the hostages, and I'm sure they're behind the scenes effort to get some hostage releases, to get women and children released. Yeah. I'm sure Tony's working on getting Americans released. So watch that space to get this kind of corridor of assistance flowing in. What good things are there to look for in this kind of sea of awfulness? You know, that's it. Is it can, can we alleviate the crisis for Gazans? Can some hostages get released? That would be progress here at a time, though, when we haven't seen much. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I hope that Biden's going to push him. Biden has not said publicly that he's going to push Israel on not doing this ground invasion. Just to, for folks to understand why that's so scary. I mean, I think if you talk to any military, especially the U.S. military, they'll tell you that urban combat is the most deadly. Like, talk to anyone who served in someplace like Fallujah in Iraq, right? Like around every corner, there is a potential ambush. The militant groups, they go from house to house and they basically kick down holes in the wall so that they can travel from house to house without being seen and ambush troops who are looking for them. But in Gaza, there is also this massive underground network of tunnels under Gaza City. So that means that fighters can hide in them, they can move around in them, they can set massive tunnel-based explosives to use to detonate underneath Israeli ground forces that they roll in. So I'm hearing reports of like up to 100,000 IDF troops potentially being part of this ground invasion. Like that is a massive force. And again, I think like the reason we are concerned is you will see enormous casualties on the Israeli on side. On the Israeli side, and yeah. Enormous casualties on the Palestinian side, in particular civilians. And, and, you know, once you start to have that cycle, right, once the images in Israel are of, you know, a, if there are hundreds of Israeli soldiers being killed, and once you see the escalating uh, toll on the Palestinians, the likelihood that reprisal violence in both directions uh, just is lit on fire in a place like the West Bank, where we're already seeing people being killed in clashes between Israeli and Palestinians, the likelihood that Hezbollah feels like, you know, we have to do something more to get involved in this conflict um, because it's in our DNA to be a part of this fight against Israel. Um, the, the, this thing can get much worse. Uh, yeah. And we just have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned before, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has been everywhere the last few days. He's been doing uh, conducting shuttle diplomacy. He's been to Israel twice. He also went to Jordan, Qatar, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. So Tony's trying to rally support for Israel. He wants these countries to at least soften their criticism of Israel. He's asking them to cut off support for Hamas, to help Hezbollah and Iran uh, stay out of the fight and not do anything stupid. Though I should point out that the Iranian foreign minister said uh, recently that if the airstrikes don't stop, the axis of resistance, I assume meaning Hezbollah, will begin to attack uh, Israel. Um, so the reception, I would say, Ben, has been uh, mixed at best. 
Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman kept Tony waiting basically all night. He showed up for this meeting in the morning. Uh, he's well known to do that, but to do that in the midst of like an urgent crisis is pretty fucked up. And then basically MBS just called for Israel to stop their military response. There was no sort of balance in the messaging like the US probably would have wanted to see. In Egypt, Tony met with President el-Sisi. Uh, El-Sisi said that Israel's response had exceeded the right to self-defense. He seemed to criticize the comments Tony made in Israel about being Jewish. And then El-Sisi questioned whether Jews had ever been uh, oppressed in Egypt, which is just fucking weird. Yeah. Um, and then this wasn't from Tony's trip, but King Abdullah of Jordan uh, rejected the idea of Jordan taking in refugees during a press conference with the Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz. Here's a clip. Part of the question on the issues of refugees coming to Jordan, and I think I can quite strongly speak on behalf not only of um, 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 uh, Jordan as a nation, but of uh, our friends in Egypt, that is a red line. Uh, because I think that is the plan by certain of the usual suspects to try and create de facto issues on the ground. No refugees in Jordan, no refugees in Egypt. Egypt was very clear. The foreign minister of Egypt was very clear about no refugees either. So I just think it's worth everyone knowing how differently this conflict is being received in other political systems than in the U.S. political system. Yeah, it, it uh, and you could feel, you know, that sinking into to Tony Blinken each time you saw him, you know, like he was absorbing this. Now, to be clear, too, there's a fecklessness to these Arab leaders. Let's like, you know, what are they doing? You know, like, what are they doing to help address this? I mean, what 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 they should be doing if they don't like Hamas and they don't like Hamas, none of those leaders do, like is, is, is literally investing massive amounts of resources in the development of an alternative Palestinian leadership, as, as we've talked about. Um, but but again, the fact that that we haven't even gotten to a ground invasion, and this is the dynamic in the region. I, I, that is what is so perilous right now. Yeah, because um, you would expect that, it, look, if there ever there was going to be more sympathy for the Israeli cause, you would think it would be after a, a, a terrorist attack of this scale. Yeah. But the fact that there is none shows that, like, these first six, seven, eight days of bombing. As soon as the bombs started falling, it just changes the dynamic. It doesn't mean that's right, but it means that that's what's happening. And... Um, and you know that that does call into question, like what? Because I think what these leaders are also thinking is, you know, we've talked about all these escalation risks in Israel, in the West Bank, in, in Lebanon, or with Iran. You know, Iran has proxies uh, in in Iraq. You know, what if Iraq is on fire again? You mm-hmm. know, um, th- there could or be Yemen. Or Yemen. There could, but there could also start to be kind of major street demonstrations uh, in these countries. The countries that have done these normalization deals with Israel um, will come under pressure. So th- th- there's going to be like once you unleash a force of a major war like this, there are going to be these unintended consequences and. These leaders are kind of retreating back into kind of predictable positions. I mean, and one of the things that you you do hear clearly in that clip from King Abdullah of Jordan, you hear from Sisi, is that they they are very suspicious that one of the intents of an Israeli ground invasion might be to create another million or two million Palestinian refugees, and that does start to hit very deep nerves in that region because yeah. um, that just that hasn't happened. Um, on that scale since the Nakba in 1948 and to some extent, uh, obviously 1967, which was more about the onset of the occupation. But the regional dynamic, not even two weeks into this thing, is, is quite perilous. You know? Yeah. And listen, it's not just countries in the Middle East that are viewing the conflict very differently than Joe Biden is. Spain's social rights minister said that the Spanish government should bring Netanyahu to the International Criminal Court to face war crime charges. Uh, the Israelis 
push back very hard on that. Uh, they accused the coalition government of aligning themselves with ISIS-style terrorism. Uh, Hamza Youssef, the first minister of Scotland, has been speaking movingly about how his wife's parents are trapped in Gaza, where they were happened to be visiting family when this war started, and even he can't get them out. Um, here's a clip. I genuinely do not know if I will see my mother-in-law and father-in-law again. Nadia doesn't know if she's gonna see her mom and dad again. And all we can do is watch the news, look at the rolling coverage, wait for messages, and we can go hours without seeing those messages, and hope and pray. Now that's just my experience. How many people across the world are feeling the same? And what about those people in Gaza? Who again are innocent, men, women, and children. Nothing to do with those terrible attacks, disgraceful terror attacks we saw this Saturday morning. They don't know what is going to happen to them. They're being told to leave, and they have no way to leave. And that's why the collective punishment is just not justified in any way, shape, or form. I mean, the leader of Scotland can't get his own family out of Gaza. Yeah. And, you know, I think if you if you look at the report of the Blinken-Netanyahu meeting being seven hours, I mean, that to me is, uh, you know... Well, I what give, do you think that was like? Well, I give Tony some credit, right? I've been in some long meetings. <laughs> where you, actually, usually my long meetings and then, you know, that I was in, uh, like I get kicked out at some point and the two of them, maybe with one aide, you know, kept going for hours and hours. But the meeting is not that long because you're agreeing, you know. Um, and it feels like Tony came back and is like, you got to do something on the humanitarian side here. Mm-hmm. And that the Israelis, by their own statements... Um, have indicated they don't want to. You know, they, they, they've said publicly, they're defense ministers, so this is not me you know, grabbing even a, uh, like uh, some even more far-right figure. It's, you know, th- that this is going to be a total siege. Nothing's going to get in. And and I think Tony was was kind of representing that sense of global sentiment of like, this is, it is not tenable for you to, to not let stuff in. I do, again, I worry about the thing that we've already talked about, the, oh, the water's on, but it's not, you know, or... There, you know, there have been announcements of things that didn't didn't happen. You know, um, uh, I think Israel has to take into account here that if this ends up being a multi-month um, ground invasion, which is, I think, what would be necessary to kind of completely destroy Hamas, as they've said they want to do, like, it's it, it, now is the time to think through the consequences of that because once you start down that road, uh, there, this is more likely to spiral than it is to, to land in a good place. Oh, man, our guy, uh, Greg Carlstrom from The Economist, just reported that uh, the Jordanian foreign minister says the summit with Biden and Amman is canceled uh, yeah. on Wednesday. That's a massive deal, right? I mean, from this you know, massive, massive deal. Strike. You're talking about Jordan receive, receives enormous assistance from the United States. Um, Egypt obviously receives even more. And if, they're can- if they do cancel that summit, um, when the president of the United States has said he's coming, like, that that's a big message. I wonder yeah. if there's some recalibration. We'll in see. The White they House they may re- right well well yeah. I mean, or re- you know, we'll see if that holds. You know, but but to to just cancel I me, mean, it's one thing for a boss to do it. If 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 that does become what Abdel and Sisi do, and they may not, they may rethink it. It, it does speak to the risks of, of going into the middle of this. Yeah, thing, I saw some re- reports the people in Jordan were trying to breach the Israeli embassy. Like things could get real ugly. That's what King Abdullah is worried about. And yeah. if he's sitting up there with Biden after he, because he doesn't know what's going to happen with Netanyahu and Biden, you know, and he doesn't want to own that if it looks a certain way. And there's a ton of Palestinians in Jordan because they're refugees. Yeah. Yep. And um, and yeah, it speaks to the risks of all this. Yeah. Uh, two more uh, things on this topic. So we did want to double back on this question of Hamas planning and the and the goals for this operation in the first place, the initial terrorist attack and the intelligence failure. Because in a previous episode, we talked about, there was a quote in in some publication from a Hamas official that made it sound like Hamas was surprised 
by like the scale and, and for lack of a better word, success of their own attack in terms of the massive number of casualties and hostages they were able to take. At the time, that seemed to make sense because I think everyone was shocked by what happened. But subsequent reporting has led me to really rethink whether I'd, I'd buy that view. Uh, the New York Times had a long report on Hamas's planning. A lot of it drew from basically GoPro footage from the Hamas fighters that they took themselves. In that footage, you can see that these fighters have color-coded maps showing them exactly where to go uh, in these Israeli military complexes. In some cases, Hamas need to know where within Israeli facilities to find communications equipment so they could destroy it. Uh, the attackers were divided into specific units with different goals and battle plans. One platoon, according to the Times, had navigators, saboteurs, and drivers, as well as mortar units in the rear to provide cover fire. There were documents that they were holding. There were, one of them was dated October 22nd, suggesting it had been planned for over a year. Uh, Hamas also, they clearly intended to capture all this footage and and release it into these really like kind of well-produced, frankly, propaganda videos that shows them firing missiles and the fighters running into battle. So, look, I, I don't have any uh, answers here, Ben, yeah. but, you know, everything I've read makes it feel like this was a, a long-planned yeah. attack and maybe they had some help. Like, I, I don't know. I'm rethinking the whole thing. It feels like it was planned for like a year based on some of the reporting. And it, it also felt like they had some insight into, you know, but they clearly had insight into the Israeli military. So... Whether that's because they had some help, somebody with an intelligence service giving them assistance, or whether that's because they themselves have penetrated some aspect of Israel's operations, it does speak to a sophistication. Um, I think what is still, so I think you're right, it does call into question that, that idea of did they kind of stumble into something much bigger than they intended. Clearly, they intended something really big. Um, I think what is all, what also may be true, though, is that they, they may not have been they may have been surprised at how little Israeli military presence there was, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, it does it does point out. I mean, this is where Israel obviously has a legitimate security concern, which is the sophistication of Hamas is alarming, um, and they're right there in Gaza. Um, the question is, is the full scale ground invasion the best way to get after that, or are there other ways of getting after it? Yeah, it also doesn't seem like these Hamas fighters stumbled upon this music festival. It sounds like they knew it was happening closed off any exits, and then they attacked everybody. And, that, and that's where they had paragliders coming in. So, yeah. you know, absolutely here. But, yeah. you know, again, like there are there are ways to more ruthlessly and methodically target the, the faction of Hamas that did this, the military wing, while trying to change the game in Gaza, um, maybe via Arab support. But that's going to get harder and harder as the days go well, on. Well, let's talk about that. Because I do think, you know, you, we both experience this. Like when you criticize the way Israel's conducting this campaign, people say, well, of course they have to respond. So what's your better plan, right? I mean, the sentiment is like, we can't not respond. And I understand that. I want to caveat that we're obviously the furthest thing from like military planners. We don't have any access to intelligence, but it's a fair question. And maybe we could just like try it in, in sort of broad strokes. I, I do think it's worth saying that there's probably not a good answer here for the Israeli response. Like they, they probably have bad and worse answers. And I think that the the worst possible response is this ground invasion idea because I just don't have any hope that they're going to achieve the goals if the goals are to get hostages back and to take out Hamas's leadership. I mean, do you have any confidence that Hamas's leadership is still in Gaza? I mean, some of these people are. Um, and one of their military commanders was apparently killed in an airstrike. Hamas themselves announced that. I mean, look, the the 
I understand when you feel the emotions that Israel does, that there's this desire for vengeance and to kind of strike back. Um, we, we've already talked about not even the moral concerns of that, but that is that actually going to make Israel more secure? I think in the near term, it's going to make it much less secure, as we've already seen with rocket fire and violence in the West Bank and threats from Hezbollah. You know, is there, was, is it most of the other responses, you know, that I can consider here? I mean, you know, because one other response is just kind of a smaller version of this, right? Like a more targeted version, like a limited ground incursion, something that looks more like 2014. You go in and you really try to degrade Hamas and, and, and target a bunch of those people through special operations and maybe try to do some hostage rescues, hit some key targets and then, you know, get out. Um, but again, the more, all the other courses of action, I think, would involve shifting the entire paradigm to essentially saying, okay, look, uh, we, Israel, as we've done in the past, are going to ruthlessly go after and kill these Hamas guys for as long as it takes. You know, like 10 years from now, somebody's going to die in a hotel room in, you know, Qatar or something because he was involved in this kind of yeah. thing. But at the same time, we the, the situation here is not sustainable. And what we want is maybe, you know what, we're going to go to the Arabs and say, okay, we are willing to allow in even like a Arab peacekeeping force into Gaza, you know, coupled with a massive infusion of resources to improve the lives of the people of Gaza um, with the precondition that like Hamas is out, you know, and, and you know, obviously that that's more easier said than done. I don't want to suggest any yeah. of that is easy. Um, but the point is that, that like everybody, you know, it's easy to point holes at what I just said, but like what, what, you know, it's much easier to point out what's wrong with a massive ground invasion. You know, like yeah. there, there, we have to change the way we think about the options in this conflict. We have to kind of expand the horizon that we're willing to entertain here. Right. And, uh, you know, there there is a way to put those Arab leaders on the spot. Some of them have proximity, like Egypt. Some of them have bottomless amounts of money that could buy just about anything in Gaza. They could buy, a, you know, could buy an entirely different leadership in Gaza if they truly wanted to do that. And and I just think, you know, that that's not how we're wired, and that's not. I, I understand that that's not how this Israeli coalition is wired, and probably not how people feel in Israel right now. But if you actually thought what is more objectively likely to bring security. I don't think the answer is a ground invasion. I just don't. Yeah, and also I think historically Israel's had this incredibly um, strong commitment to getting back hostages. That usually involves releasing Hamas prisoners, yeah. right? Gilad Shalit, uh, an IDF soldier who was taken hostage by Hamas, held for like five years. Uh, the Israelis ended up releasing a thousand people from Israeli prisons to get him back. I, that's almost certainly going to have to happen in this case, to get back all 199 hostages, including Americans. So, I mean, I know that's really hard politics. It's not just hard politics. It's bad policy because one of the guys who was released by the Israelis to get back Shalit helped plan the Hamas attack on October 7th, right? So it's terrible all around. But if you want more people to survive, if you want to bring them home, you're probably going to have to do that. I also think, like, to your point, though, long term, the, the harder political thing in, in Netanyahu's eyes, apparently, is to create some sort of viable political well, that's, option that's that isn't Hamas. That, and that's the core point here. Is is the end state that you're seeking a peace between Israelis and Palestinians, or is it the total military defeat of Palestinian aspirations for a state? You know? And and that that's where this gets tricky because most of the other courses of action uh, that are not wholly militarized actually involve building up um, a, an alternative Palestinian leadership. And, and that's 
that's something Netanyahu's never wanted to do. He's actually wanted to weaken the Palestinian Authority, which is like the much better version of Palestinian leadership, albeit a flawed one, deeply yeah. flawed one. One last thing on this. I'm sure people are reading these stories and they'll see reports that Hamas has this exiled political leadership living openly in Qatar. What role do you think they end up playing in any kind of negotiation here? And can you just like, like give people a little bit of background for like how that's possible that these guys just live out in the open in like hotels in Qatar? I mean, I think that the, you know, essentially, first of all, as we talked about Hamas is all these different factions and people and people have been in different positions at different times. And, you know, some of these people in Qatar don't know what the hell is going on. Some do. But the bottom line is that I think the United States uh, and probably even Israel to some extent have kind of tolerated a degree of this, you know, kind of address for Hamas because the reason you said, like, you have to be able to talk to these people somewhere, you know? Like when we let the um, Taliban set up the, an office. So, we, yeah. yeah, the Taliban set up an office in Doha, same place, because it just became a venue where you were able to have discussions with them. And I'm sure this is some of the most heavily monitored. Um, these, you know, I don't think these people are coming and going easily. I mean, they I think, have mixers, like yeah, the parties? Yeah, they're just kind of, they're, they're locked down there. But, like, the reason to have it is so that, you know, you can go... Uh, and, and pass shuttle diplomacy proposals back and forth to people like this to try to get hostages out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to pause on Israel-Gaza for now. Take a quick break. and we come back, we'll talk about reports uh, that a U.S. senator might be a spy for Egypt, some good news out of Poland, and much, much more. But before we take a break, uh, if you can't make it to our Pod Save America show in D.C. this Thursday, October 19th, don't worry. We'll be live streaming the whole event exclusively on moment.co. We're going to be joined by Senator John Fetterman, Chef Jose Andres, uh, and Jennifer Carol Foy, and guest host Simone Sanders. So it will be a fantastic show. Join us and your fellow pod listeners live from anywhere. You will feel like you're at the show, but at the same time, you get to be on your couch. Get your virtual tickets now at moment.co slash PSA. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. And I Listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Okay, Ben, so we've talked a couple times uh, about this indictment of New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez. Uh, to catch people up, investigators found cash, gold bars in his house. I think uh, someone leased his wife a car uh, that Menendez got in exchange for doing political favors for business people with connections to the Egyptian government. Uh, last week, though, prosecutors brought new charges alleging that Bob Menendez, remember he's a Democrat, equal opportunity bashing here of both parties from us, was acting as an agent of a foreign government, that government being Egypt. So, like, was he just a spy? Is that what we're learning? Yeah, because if you read the, you know, the reports on this and the indictment, it's like, it, you know, sometimes someone's an agent of foreign government because they, they, they didn't register the, a far registration, which is essentially like, you know, you're a lobbyist for that government in D.C. And, you know, you failed to, like, alert the justice or whoever the fuck you have to alert that you're... DOJ, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, Usually because you're, like, doing PR for them but, or, something, or lobbying. This one was like the head of military intelligence in Washington. So, so like, you know, we have CIA station chief in other countries. The basically intelligence station chief in, in Washington for Egypt was meeting with the Menendezes. Like there's a you know report about Bob Menendez's wife, like saying to the head of intelligence, what would you like the love of my life to do for you? It's right? just an incredible quote. I mean, this is actually stuff that was happening. This guy was running Bob Menendez as an agent. I mean, the, 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 this is, it's mind boggling. This, this is stuff we do in other countries. This is what we do in other countries. I mean, if I told you like the plot of a spy movie is the head of the intelligence unit of X government goes to Washington, like makes a, like a cash deal with the wife of a prominent senator uh -huh. and then gets that senator to start to do massive favors for Egypt, like strategizing about it. Bob Menendez met in a hotel with the head of Egyptian intelligence in Washington, according to these reports, to, to, to strategize before the guy met with senators to try to get Egyptian aid unlocked. I mean, the the language, you know, we, we you know, resistance tick is like it's a lie, not a falsehood. This is spying. <laughs> this isn't just like foreign agent stuff. This yeah. is crazy, you know. And, and by the way, once you're Bob Menendez, and he's still in the Senate. Like, what is he doing yeah, in the Senate? Get him like, out of the get Senate. Get him out now. of the Senate. This is crazy. Especially given all this context, yeah. given all everything yeah, happening in the list. Going, yeah. But also, when, when you're the the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and you take money from the Egyptian government and do their bidding. You, this is no longer about you profiting for these favors. They then own you. Yeah. Because they could turn you in at any time. They blackmail the right? shit out of you. Blackmail the hell yeah. out of you. Yeah. 
you're theirs. And they're doing it in gold bars. I mean, look, this is like a bad plot. If like this was like a Netflix show, people would be like, yeah, that's not believable. No, the the yeah. senator wouldn't really just take some gold bars, would yeah. he? You know? No, it's uh, truly unbelievable. I cannot believe the man was the, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee yeah, and yeah. is still in the U.S. Yeah, and, and he's still there. It's cra- I mean, Andy Kim, God bless him, is running against him in the Democratic primary. Please support Andy Kim. Like, this is crazy that this guy is still it's around. Yeah. unbelievable. Uh, ben, some rare good news out of Poland where it looks like voters have ousted the right-wing nationalist law and justice party. So there were three opposition parties running in this election. They were able to get about 53% of the vote, and they will almost certainly control parliament. The law and justice party got the most votes of any single party, but the opposition coalition will get more parliamentary seats and get the majority. So there will now be this complicated government formation process that'll take a little bit. But it seems likely that a guy named Donald Tusk will become the next prime minister of Poland. He had the job from 2007 to 2014 is far more moderate than the current uh, government. Long story short, this is a win for those who are worried about the future of democracy in Poland, who care about European integration, and who are worried about Poland's rightward tilt on social issues, especially their very restrictive anti-abortion laws. Yeah, I mean, this is... It is an extraordinary piece of good news. I mean, it really is. Like we've, you know, checked in here a few times in recent months with some like, you know, uh, more dire concerns about rising far-right politics in Europe or in Eastern Europe. But to go from the Law and Justice Party, which was, yes, it was supportive of Ukraine, but was basically Orban light kind of in Poland, all the way to like a Donald Tusk who was like a, you know, he was previously in the Polish government, but then he was a European Union official. You know, mm-hmm. like this is a massive uh, shift um, and and just really good news. And and is a sign, by the way, like in recent years, like the Law and Justice Party was outflanked even by another far right party. And it was this kind of sense of, uh, it, you know, can this ever be arrested? And the, the same kind of uh, permanent state of unease was sinking in. This is a sign like people shouldn't give up. Like, you know, people ran a good campaign and they beat these guys, you know? Yeah. And, and so it's just a reminder, there's nothing inevitable about the drift in some of these countries. This is a huge pendulum swing in a really big and important country. Yeah, very big, unexpected uh, surprise. Uh, some more good news, Ben. So according to the Washington Post, the Biden administration and the government of Venezuela have agreed to a deal where the U.S. will ease sanctions on Venezuela's oil industry if President Nicolas Maduro will agree to allow competitive internationally monitored elections next year. So um, people might be saying, why is this good news? Well, look, it would be great if they had these fair elections. I don't have a ton of confidence in Maduro allowing them. So we'll have to wait and see and you know, really make sure that he follows through on his end of the deal. And, and the sanctions relief is time limited. So the U.S. can slap back sanctions if he breaks his word. But everyone, I think, agrees that it is in the world's interest, it is in America's interest to improve the humanitarian and economic situation in Venezuela. Uh, hopefully this sanctions relief will help. H- how impactful do you think lifting these sanctions will be? I think it'd be quite impactful. Um, I mean, first of all, what's interesting is there may be a connection to the Menendez thing because Menendez was the biggest proponent of these sanctions on Venezuela and of not making any mm-hmm. changes in policy and having him not as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee where you can hold up your nominees and mess around with funding and things m- might have made this easier because this has been in the works, I think, for a while from yeah. everything I've yeah. heard. Like they've been talking about this for a long time. Um but the other thing is that, you know, I, I got a good email from a listener um, just to show that I l- read these. Um, there was kind of like, you know, you always talk about like lifting sanctions, but isn't Maduro basically, you know, there, aren't there other things that are important? Isn't Maduro a, a creep? Um, 100% the guy's a creep. But the point is, 
it's not unlike the conversation, by the way, we just had about the ground invasion. Like these sanctions were not dislodging Maduro. He was becoming worse and life was getting worse for Venezuelans without any horizon of hope. And here, what you can do here is at least make life better for the Venezuelan people. If suddenly like there's more capacity for resources to get in because these kind of blanket sanctions um, are, are lifted, life will get better and, and, and it won't stop the migration in the United States, but it should uh, affect it certainly over time. And also, by the way, it, it, it does create, look, an election, you know, we'll have to see how that goes. Uh, you know, I'm sure that there have been negotiations around how that election is monitored and, and who in the region is uh, helping to do that and the legitimacy that bar that we'd like to see cleared. But, you know, the, the just trying to recognize an alternative government and, you know, squeezing Maduro wasn't working. I mean, I think trying to push this more in the direction of a re- return to electoral politics is more likely, frankly, to bring about change in Venezuela than what we were doing. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Um, it doesn't mean we should trust Maduro. But I think this is the right right call. I, I think it clearly indicates that what Trump did failed. Yeah, better than the uh, Trump era policy of um, sending John Bolton out to a press briefing with like a threat to send troops to Colombia written down on a notepad so yeah. everyone could see it. Yeah, or like Marco Rubio like tweeting from Colombia that the government in Venezuela is about to fall or, or Mike Pompeo saying that there's a plane on the tarmac in Caracas about to, Maduro's about to leave. Well, that wasn't happening. Like that that was all <laughs> nonsense. I forgot about that last one. Yeah. Uh, a couple more things before we get to the interview. So uh, this has been a, a really tough story that's gone under the radar. Um, the Pakistani government has declared that all illegal migrants have until November 1st to leave the country voluntarily or they will face deportation. This order is uh, very clearly aimed at the, about 1.7 million refugees from Afghanistan who are now living in Pakistan. The UN says that 700,000 of them fled to Pakistan after the Taliban took power again in 2020 after the U.S. withdrawal. The Pakistani government is both offering rewards to people who turn in illegal migrants and threatening Pakistanis who provide accommodations or facilities to any of them after this deadline. There has been a recent surge in suicide bombings and militant attacks in Pakistan that the government blames on Afghan migrants. Ben, I know that President Biden's got a lot on his plate right now, but you know, a forced migration of 1.7 million people would have catastrophic consequences. Obviously, uh, 20 years of uh, U.S.-led war in Afghanistan has contributed enormously to the this underlying situation. Any thoughts here on like what the U.S. or the international community should be doing to to try to head off this disaster? I, I do think that the U.S. And international community should you know, look. Pakistan is in need of significant amount of you know, uh, monetary and fiscal support. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, this is not acceptable. I mean, like, it's just a dark piece of business here. You're going to push like over a million Afghans who who left because probably they had credible fears for their safety back into Afghanistan. So I'd be putting on the table here, like not just the U.S., but like other countries, like like, let's sit down and try to figure out some, some solution here that does not involve you doing this. I should also say... You know what? Like Pakistan is the one that harbored the Taliban. Pakistan's the one that played both sides of this thing. They got the Taliban government they wanted in Kabul. So don't you know? Fucking then say like you know? Oh, what what are these Afghans doing here? Like they created this as much as anybody else. You know, and it's not the innocent Afghans that are fleeing the Taliban that are engaged in suicide attacks. It's the Taliban cousins, you know, the, the Pakistani Taliban that has been fighting Pakistan forever, which is why successive U.S. administrations, including us, were like, why are you getting into bed with these guys? You know, so I, I just think that this people should keep the Afghan people in mind. We've had these horrific earthquakes. We, now we have this. Um, 
you know, the U.S. has to try to continue to do as right as we can by the Afghan people so that it doesn't look like we just washed our hands of this thing after the evacuation. Yeah, one to watch. Uh, okay, last story here, Ben. So we usually look to our friends um, in Australia for fun stories and comic relief, but uh, not today. Uh, in Australia, there was a pretty terrible vote. There was an effort to give Indigenous Australians a say in Parliament through this new advisory body and to recognize Indigenous communities as Australia's first inhabitants. That failed uh, overwhelmingly. 60% of voters voted against this referendum. The referendum started with a lot of support, but it seemed to, to go down over time. There was rampant disinformation uh, getting spread about like really this very modest proposal, but people started to think that it might allow for future land confiscation from people. Um, the, the reality though for life uh, for indigenous communities in Australia is pretty bleak. The life expectancy uh, for indigenous communities is eight years lower than the national average. They have higher rates of suicide and incarceration. Prior to the 1967 constitutional referendum, indigenous people were not even counted as part of Australia's population. Uh, and indigenous people in parts of Australia were hunted and killed by settlers well into the 1900s. Uh, so today, those populations make up less than 4% of the total population of Australia. This very modest effort would have just given them a little more political representation, uh, but it's it failed and it's really ugly. Uh, also, Ben, you know, New Zealand has been a bright spot over the past few years. Jacinda Ardern was a great progressive leader uh, until she decided to resign. Unfortunately, New Zealand just voted in its most conservative government in decades in support for the Labor Party was nearly cut in half. So a very uh, couple of terrible election outcomes there. Yeah, it's pretty shitty. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, in Australia, what I'd say is like, you know, the, the thing about their their reckoning with the treatment of their indigenous peoples is like, you know, you, you do all the symbolism and they do some important things. Like you go to Australia and you have to, you know, obviously uh, before you speak in public uh, settings, you know, you uh, you give thanks to the traditional owners of the land. And, but like then you get to kind of concrete proposals like this and suddenly it's like, no, no, let's not do that. I mean, the it, it just, and look, we have a long way to go in this country yes. with uh, support to our own uh, indigenous populations. And um, so we're, we're in a huge glass house, the biggest glass house in the world in this issue. But it... Uh, it does just show that there's, you know, it's hard to kind of make the symbolic reckoning lead to substantive outcomes. In New Zealand, it just kind of sucks. I mean, the, there was a pendulum poised to swing back there, but, um, you know, you, you, you hate to see it after after someone like Jacinda Ardern. Yeah, it seems like there was just a real backlash over cost of living increases. I yeah, mean, like... they've got a huge cost of living crisis. They had a rough COVID down there. Um, she was kind of, I think, a, you know, a relatively popular figure who you know left you know there, there's the the people coming after her didn't have the same uh allure to the public and yeah it's a, the pendulum just swung back but the, i think the challenge here is that the guy before Jacinda Ardern was this guy John Key who actually was like one of Obama's favorite center right guys cuz he was like a country club republican kind of guy right like he wasn't a lunatic and um this feels like a farther right government that New Zealand has had so yeah. it's got that kind of MAGA flavor, you know, like everybody's got their own flavor of that. And, and that that's what's worrisome, you know. Yeah, a little culture war a little culture stuff, by yeah. social media. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, okay, we are going to take another quick break. And we come back, you will hear my interview with Melanie Ward, who is the CEO of an organization called uh, Medical Aid for Palestinians. She has a bunch of folks on the ground in Gaza providing medical relief. So you'll want to hear from her about what that is like uh, and how listeners can help out.
Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The situation on the ground uh, remains dire for Palestinians in Gaza, especially those who need medical treatment as fuel, water, and electricity are running out. Joining us today is Melanie Ward. She is the CEO of Medical Aid for Palestinians. Her organization has about 20 people in Gaza doing everything they can to help. Melanie, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. So your organization uh, is trying to provide medical relief in Gaza at a time when, you know, an already fragile medical infrastructure is being severely stressed by airstrikes, limited fuel, electricity, water. I believe that Gaza's largest hospital is in northern Gaza, in Gaza City, which is the area Israel said should be evacuated. What kind of access to medical care do people have in Gaza right now? It's, it's absolutely desperate. And to be honest with you, it's important to understand that even at the best of times, access to medical care in Gaza is severely limited. Um, drugs and essential supplies for hospitals at the best of times in Gaza are something between 25 and 50 percent of what is actually needed. We call, we call it zero stock. There are, there's just not enough of them at the best of times anyway. And so right now, um, when Israeli military has given orders to hospitals to evacuate, which, by the way, almost none of them have, um, and trying to just move medical supplies around in a, in a war zone when bombs are falling is incredibly hard. Um, I have an amazing team of staff on the ground. 18 of them are now displaced. Um, and despite it all, they are continuing to try to work. My, my colleague Motaz was sitting in the dark the other night. He had a little bit of phone left in his, in his cell phone battery. Um, so he had a little bit of power left on his cell phone battery. And he was using it to try to make sure that we're still trying to get supplies into the hospitals. But medical supplies are running out. And... Um, today we had word both that the only cancer hospital in Gaza is about to shut down because it's run out of fuel for the generators. We also had an emergency SOS call, call go out from hospitals for any citizens in Gaza, any gas station owners with even small amounts of diesel to bring them to the hospitals for the generators. And then devastatingly, we just heard in the last hour that it looks like Israel has bombed um, a major church-run hospital in, in, in Gaza as well, and, and potentially dozens of, of dead people from that as well. 
And, and my understanding is that not only are, are hospitals a place where people are seeking medical treatment, obviously, but it's also become sort of a shelter of last resort for a lot of individuals. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. We've got a medical aid for Palestinians doctor. He's a British doctor um, who's gone out to volunteer. He flew out to Gaza the Sunday after this started, and he's he's a, a war surgeon. He's gone out to, to, to volunteer in Shifa Hospital, which is the hospital you're referring to, the main hospital in, in Gaza City. He said the grounds of the hospital are filled with 15,000 people who are trying to seek shelter there because they think it might be safer and, and be less likely to be bombed. And he said that the number of people there, the sheer numbers of people is making it really difficult for the hospital to function. It's obviously not designed to host that number of people. Um, and then you put on top of that the fact that the sheer numbers of dead people, sorry, it's so grim, but the sheer numbers of dead people mean that the morgues in the hospital are overflowing. They've run out of body bags. And so that's why we saw the horrific sight yesterday of them beginning to bury dead Palestinians, including dead children, in mass graves. So the situation is utterly horrific. Um, one of the things that's been hampering the efforts from my own team to deliver the last remaining medical supplies in Gaza into the hospitals is the sheer numbers of people in the grounds mean that it took four hours um, a couple of days ago for a truck laden with medical supplies to move through the grounds of the hospital and, and, and get to the warehouse where it was dropping the supplies. Usually that would take a couple of minutes just because it's absolutely flooded with people, desperate people trying to seek safety. My God. I, I mean, I've also seen that, you know, a lot of reports and uh, officials say that while airstrikes are an obvious and, and very serious risk, the even greater threat to the broader population is access to clean water. What do we know about water access in Gaza at the moment and the potential health risks? I mean, it's horrific and it couldn't be more desperate. One of my own staff, Asma, she's a neonatal specialist. She's been displaced with her family. They've run out of clean water to drink and so they're boiling dirty water um, which still isn't good enough. It's making the children sick. People are literally running out of water. And the problem isn't just that Israel had cut off the water coming into Gaza. It's also that the electricity and the fuel have been cut off because Gaza does have some of its own water wells, some of which, by the way, have been bombed. But it does have some of them still. They need electricity, though, to be able to pump the water around so it comes out of the taps. They need the generator to be able to do the same. And so... It's the, the, short, the water having been cut off, compounded by um, the fuel and electricity being cut off. And like you don't need me to tell you that people can't live very long without water in normal times, never mind in a war zone um, where you have dead bodies under the rubble, where hospitals can't get the water they need to try to keep the hospital clean. So it's a, it's a public health disaster. Yeah, uh, I've seen reports today, I think I heard on the BBC this morning, that there's something like 4,000 trucks worth of relief aid sort of sitting in in Egypt, like six kilometers from the Gaza Strip, waiting to be allowed into Gaza. How much do you think that aid would help? And what would you like to see the international community do to increase that flow of aid? Yeah, like that, that aid coming in is really essential. Um, however, Israel bombed Rafa crossing, the, the Palestinian side of Rafa crossing this morning. Um, and that, that aid has got to get in. We're running out of medical supplies. We're running out of food. My colleague Mahmoud couldn't find enough bread for his kids today. We're running out of uh, clean water and electricity, as I just said. But also there's a shelter situation. You know, 
I've worked in humanitarian responses in other places to the Syria crisis, to the crisis caused by Boko Haram in northeast Nigeria, and I, I've never seen anything like this. It's absolutely terrifying because so many people have fled from the north of Gaza to the south. There's no functioning humanitarian system, and so there's no shelter. People are sleeping in the streets. They're sleeping in their cars. Everything is completely overcrowded. There's no sanitation and, and no water, and so actually... Thousands of people have gone home to the north just to just to try and survive. So we need aid to come in. Um, but if it's going to be able to do so safely, then Israel will have to guarantee not to not to bomb the aid convoys. It will have to guarantee their safety. The truth is, though, we can't truck in enough water for two million people. The water has to come right. back on. The electricity and, and fuel have to come back on as well. Yeah. And I imagine the desalination plants need fuel to run. Uh, and that's a critical piece of this. Um, you know, you mentioned your colleague, Mahmoud. We spoke with him last week. He was kind enough to send uh, some voice memos to us that got through even with limited internet access. He said he had decided to stay in his home in northern Gaza rather than evacuate southern Gaza. He basically said, like, I'm not going to live through it a second Nakba. I'm not going to be a refugee again. So you've, you've been able to maintain contact with him. I and mean, do, do you know more about how he and his family are doing? Yeah, I mean, uh, he's still alive. And to be honest, that's uh, at this point, one of the best things I can hope for for my team. You know, every day, um, we can't contact everyone every day at the moment because, well, we have to hope it's because they've run out of battery in their phone. But to be honest, when you don't get a response, you don't know why it is that people aren't able to get back in touch with you. Mahmoud is, is still there. Um, he's determined to stay there. But what he tells me day by day about what they're living through, and particularly for his children, is devastating and heartbreaking. You know, I mentioned him earlier. He went out to get bread for the for the kids and for his elderly parents earlier, and there wasn't enough. He got one piece of bread for each person. Mahmoud is a highly educated man. He studied at Durham University in, in the UK. He's a really smart guy, and he's really, really good at his job. He's a normal person like us, and what he's living through is is complete hell. He told me of this awful conversation that he had with his wife, where his wife said to him that they should perhaps thinking think about writing the names of their children on the backs of their children, so that when they die, people will know that they're related to each other and can bury them together. And imagine imagine that as, a, as as parents thinking about that. But then what he said is his wife hadn't realised that one of the things that parents and, and kids are starting to do in Gaza is to write the names on the palms of their hand so that when they die, people will know who they are and can bury them together with their, with their family. And so they had this conversation about whether it's better to write your kid's name on the palm of your hand or on of, of their hand or, or on their back. It, it feels like humanity is kind of deserting us in this moment. And one of my other colleagues, uh, Mohammed, he spent Friday working to get the last of the medical supplies in Gaza into the hospitals. On Friday night, his home was bombed when he was in it. Somehow he and his wife and kids survived, but his 13-year-old niece, Farah, was killed. And he told me it took six hours searching through the rubble and all the dead bodies to find Farah. And he told me that it was like a scene from the last day of humanity on Earth. That's just, uh, it's unimaginable. Yeah, I, I i saw reports this morning, you know, for every kind of report you see about, you know, confirmed number of people killed, 
and wounded that there are hundreds if not thousands more just trapped under the rubble some alive some not um some will never know it's um it is uh unimaginable and and i think one of the things if i may that the world has lost sight of here is that there are a million children in gaza a million children and i heard a really moving interview um, with an israeli man whose mother is one of the hostages who's been taken and one of the things he said was that you can't cure killed babies with more dead babies and i think that's a really important point to remember right now like you shouldn't need to say that but it feels like the world has lost sight of that there are a million children in gaza today we reached the horrific landmark of a thousand children having been killed um in the israeli bombing of the last 10 days and they're killing one child in gaza every 15 minutes that's who's really suffering here it's kids yeah this this bombing campaign seems to be fucking madness to me so listen uh, l- listeners I'm sure I've heard your story, heard about the work your team is doing, would love to help. How can they support you? Can they donate? Is money the best way to do it? What, how, how can they help? Yeah, I mean, if people can donate, give what they can, it would be massively beneficial right now. Our website address is map.org.uk. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Just Giving as well. I have to say that the response so far has been amazing. We've had support from over 103 countries around the world. Um, so it gives you a little bit of hope that most people still care about humanity and about doing the right thing. But the scale of the crisis is completely unprecedented. And so we're going to need as much support as we can to try and save as many lives as possible in the days ahead. And the other thing I would say, particularly that you've got a lot of listeners in, in the US, is making contact with your representatives, phoning your representatives on the Hill and telling them that this has got to stop. That really, really matters right now. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Everyone should uh, check out your website. Again, it's Medical Aid for Palestinians. Uh, Melanie, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for the work you're doing. And uh, I hope uh, your entire team stays safe uh, and that you get to see them soon. Thank you. Thanks again to Melanie Ward for joining the show. And uh, I don't know who else we thank in these days. Uh, the, the Polish voters, Polish um, voters, you know, uh, seriously, like that's a, you know, thanks for the slice of good news on the timeline there, yeah. guys. Uh, we really needed it. You came through at a good point, you know? Yeah. Thanks to Bob Menendez for uh, being, uh, just corrupt enough to get yourself out of power so that better things can happen in places like Cuba and Venezuela. Yeah. That's yeah. More, well, thanks to like the process, by the way, like, I mean, it sounded like he was kind of walking around with a catch me sign on his mm. back and what they were doing, or at least his wife was. I yes, mean, yes. You know, um, but uh, good work by those guys. Thanks to the, you know, the SDNY people that uh, unraveled the scheme of the gold bars and the halal and the whole thing. There's another weird story about her killing someone with her car and him maybe helping sort of send someone to help get her out of it. Well, too. yeah, it's that was super shit. dark too, because it was like, there's this fatal car accident and then like 10 minutes into the police being on the scene, some man shows up and is like, I'm here to... <laughs> Like, yeah, uh, on the buddy's wife. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's not weird. Great. But they, look, I'm gonna on a serious note. Like, thanks. Uh, y- you know, you mentioned this already, but I, it just bears repeating. Like, because we all see this horribleness, you know, Hamas and then these airstrikes, and um, the, the, there are so many people like that you see in Gaza, like trying to help. Um, you know, in hospitals, like working. Can you imagine being a doctor in one of those hospitals? Yeah. Like those people, family there. those people are heroes beyond comprehension. The, the people that are just trying to like help as they can, and so um, that 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 we should keep that in mind. There's you see the goodness of humanity underneath a lot of the badness. Uh, 
Bennis. So yeah. You know, yeah. The journalists too, like Nor Hazim. The journalists are uh, telling these stories, you know, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's it for us for today. Uh, talk to you again soon. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Reed Cherlin. Our producer is Alona Minkowski, and associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, audio support by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Our studio technician is David Tolls. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Phoebe Bradford, who upload our episodes and videos to youtube.com slash podsavetheworld. How to Win 2024 is MSNBC's newest original podcast. How do you win an unprecedented election that could see a criminally indicted ex-president take on the current commander-in-chief? And how do you win over voters of any party when mistrust and leadership is at an all-time high? Claire McCaskill and Jennifer Palmieri, two of the most well-respected voices in American politics, and Jen Palmieri is our friend, have some ideas. Search for How to Win 2024 to follow and listen to the series. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.